Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Media and Entertainment State of the Union. My name is Ben Massick. I'm the Worldwide Business Development Lead for Media and Entertainment here at uh, AWS. And it is my great honor and privilege to be on stage with four leading and highly accomplished media technologists. We're gonna have Steve Kowalski in a bit, VP of uh, Sony Pictures uh, Imageworks, heads up uh, engineering at Imageworks, who's gonna be talking about visual effects rendering at scale on AWS. We'll have John Herbert with 21st Century Fox, the CIO there. He's gonna be talking about a lot of the great work that Fox has been doing in terms of media supply chain, storage, analytics, and other use cases. We'll have Fabio Luzzi with VP of Audience Measurement at Viacom talking about some groundbreaking work they're doing with AI and advanced analytics to help revolutionize decision-making in media. And finally, we'll have Rajneel Kumar who heads up technology with Viacom 18 Media and he'll ultimately be talking about uh, an OTT platform and how they're working to utilize AI to help increase consumption and prevent churn. What makes us special in the media and entertainment industry is uh, this whole desire to make our viewers happy, to delight our media consumers. And much of how we do this is by ultimately creating beautiful, delightful content. And with that content, we can drive more viewers. And as we drive more viewers, we're able to obtain more consumption data. And with that additional data, we can then allow a lot of the folks throughout the business on the production side to make better decisions around what to green light. On the distribution and marketing side to figure out who we should distribute, who we should be uh, marketing to. And with all that, we can then create that much more in that much better content. And thus, the flywheel effect in media continues on. Here at AWS, we are extremely fortunate to have many wonderful industry-leading customers who have been able to utilize AWS and many partner solutions to enable a variety of highly complex, highly advanced media workloads. These span from production through supply chain to distribution and monetization. And throughout this uh, talk, we're gonna hear from Sony about what they're doing on the uh, upstream post-production side. We'll be hearing from Fox about what they're doing in terms of uh, digital asset management, media supply chain, even aspects of uh, what they're doing on the analytics uh, side of things. We'll be hearing uh, from Viacom about what they're doing uh, in terms of OTT, uh, and then from Fabio uh, on the Viacom US side about what they're doing in terms of uh, analytics and AI. And it's just extremely exciting for us at AWS to be talking about all of these different aspects of the media supply chain, of the full media life cycle, really from beginning to end, from once again, upstream production types of processes through supply chain, into distribution. Without further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce uh, our first uh, speaker here, Steve Kowalski, a good friend and former colleague from uh, Sony Imageworks. Thank you. Um, thank you all for coming out today. Ben asked me to talk to tell 
you guys a story about how we use um, the cloud and used, uh, in particular, the spot market on uh, two movies that we worked on. First was the Smurfs movie, and the second one was the Emoji movie. And I think, you know, to tell our story, it's important that you understand who we are, what we do, and how we do it. So I apologize up front for what might seem like a lengthy preamble. Um, our hope is that our story can inspire you guys to find unique ways to leverage cloud to help your business. So with that, I'll jump into it. Uh, Imageworks is unique within the post-production space in that it simultaneously works on both visual effects projects and full-length animated features using the same production pipeline. Typically, you work on, uh, you know, you work on one or the other, but, but not both. To do this, we employ over a thousand artists in both Vancouver, British Columbia, and Culver City, California. Uh, we operate a large data center in Washington State with tens of thousands of rendering cores and multiple petabytes of storage. And this year, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary. Okay, a few key, a few key things about uh, ImageWorks. So all the projects we work on are bid and are fixed fee. Our workforce tends to be ephemeral and scales up and down in sync with the cyclical and seasonal nature of our business. And by cyclical, I mean the times of year, such as the summer and the key holiday periods in which large tentpole feature films are typically released. Ultimately, it's these seasons that drive our computing needs. Uh, recently, schedules have become much more aggressive in order to allow filmmakers as much flexibility as possible to make the very best pictures. Unfortunately, uh, shorter schedules means less time. Less time means we need more people, and more people means we need more resources. And often, projects allow so little time that the only way to get them done is through sheer brute force. Many different types of artists work on a movie, and each follow the same basic iterative process. An artist uses specialized software to create descriptive instructions for creating an output, submits that script to a render farm to compute the output, and then presents that output to a director for feedback. The director's feedback informs the next cycle until the director decides the output's just right. A movie is made up of scenes, and scenes are composed of constituent shots. Groups of artists, each working in different disciplines, such as layout or modeling or effects or lighting, make the necessary ingredients used to assemble shots. Each artist working in each discipline is using outputs from other artists to create iterations of their own work. For example, downstream artists in lighting can't do their job without inputs uh, taken from layout, modeling, rigging, animation, etc. This process plays out over time until a shot's complete. Not all artists' disciplines have the same resource requirements. Those who come in towards the tail end of the process, namely those doing color and lighting work, tend to have the heaviest resource uh, needs and the least amount of time to complete their work. So from a resource standpoint, every project becomes back-ended. And just how back-ended a project becomes is influenced by a number of, uh, of variables, including things like script, rewrites, character or environment changes, indecision. I think you kind of get the point. Almost always, though, the delivery date never moves. 
So any of these changes result in more work to complete in a shorter amount of time, and something generally has to give. So in a perfect world, you work on multiple projects, and they time out nicely so you get good utilization of your renter farm and maintain a steady artist base. Here, we look at three features uh, running in the same year spread out in a manageable way. In a world like this, you can buy the rendering cores you need, and it's generally a good investment. Lately, though, things have not been so ideal, and projects are piling up on one another, creating hiring challenges and big resource shortfalls. And this is before anything unexpected happens on one or more of the projects, which is certainly something you can count on happening. This has become the new normal within entertainment. When our resource shortfalls were much smaller, we'd invest in our rendering capacity, feeling confident that it was the cheapest thing we could do and that we'd see good utilization over the long term. This is what we told all the cloud providers, and it was true. But now, if your business is anything like ours, spending six, eight, or even $10 million to mitigate a short-term need uh, is just, it's just not viable, especially when you don't know when you'll see that need again. Our business simply can't bear it, and our clients definitely won't pay for it. So we reached a point where we needed something elastic, and we needed the price of whatever that is to fit within the cost structure we'd established with our clients. While we looked at the cloud as an option for many years, it was time to figure out how to make this work for real. And knowing that the price of cloud had to be competitive with our own internal cost structure, where projects pay our facility for the resources they consume, we immediately targeted the spot market. We called Ben, explained what we wanted to do, and pitched a small proof of concept around the Smurfs project. The concept was simple. Render on 5,000 vCPUs for one week in spot and compare the performance results with running on-prem. We would compare the total spent on cloud with the total cost of a traditional hardware rental that we had recently wrapped up on another project. To prove out the solution, we utilized Spot Fleet and launched Innovere VFXT NFS caching cluster. We set up a 10 gig direct connect to a VPC. To manage our instances, we utilized our existing foreman and puppet infrastructure and used our proprietary job queuing system to dispatch work to the machines. We limited the job types to renders that utilized our own proprietary version of the Arnold renderer. Here's a picture of what this looks like. You can see that workers in EC2 spot read data from Avir VFXTs, which dynamically cache data stored in our on-prem storage utilizing the AWS Direct Connect service. Our render queuing manager seamlessly dispatches workloads to cloud and on-prem render farm resources. From an end-user standpoint, it looks like one large render farm and they have the ability to tag jobs to run either on-prem or in the cloud. To get Smurfs done, we didn't actually need the cloud resources, but we knew we had to answer some key questions. Can we render on preemptible machines? How do we manage cloud machines? And perhaps most important, what's this all going to cost us? Well, we had great success in maintaining scale. Price-wise, we found Spot Fleet to cost 42% less than traditional hardware rentals, and the AWS machines were actually slightly faster. Compared to the machines we owned, the AWS instances were slightly slower at computing the same workloads. We learned some instance types were preempted more than others, and that we could largely mitigate 
the effects of preemption through the use of checkpointing. Our rendered management software made the use of EC2 seamless, and the Avere caches canceled nearly all network latency. This was a major success for us, and we felt we had a cheaper and more viable solution to address any short-term resource shortfalls we'd see in the future. Okay, let's talk about emoji. Seven months after the Smurfs proof of concept, we're working on the emoji movie project. The producer and digital production manager come into my office to explain that they need render cores. We'd been expecting them and had already begun preparations to restart our Amazon environment. What we didn't expect was how tough things were looking for them. They have seven weeks and a ton of rendering to get through. They can't hire artists they need, and the ones they have are idling because the render queue is backed up with low-priority jobs. They can't, give, they can't give the client what they want, and this might become the worst-looking project we've ever delivered. Based on our experience with Smurfs, we knew we could get them a modest number of machines, but our producer had another idea. He wanted to spin up a whole bunch of machines on the order of a magnitude more machines than we had planned to see if we couldn't take some pressure off the team and turn the delivery into a soft landing. Essentially, he was aiming to increase the overall productivity and the plan was to push lower priority jobs to the cloud and run the high priority jobs on premise. Turning around the high priority work faster would result in more immediate feedback to artists and speed up the entire workflow cycle artists would no longer be sitting around idling. Our engineering team was a little concerned. We didn't know if our spot fleet orders would fill at scale, and if the show delivery depended upon them, well, that was a really tough uh, position for us to be in. Our producer assured us the show would get done no matter what happened. The worst that would happen is we deliver the worst project ever. So we really had nothing to lose. So we started scaling up, and everybody was really excited and happy. We hit 10,000, 25,000, 50,000, and about the time we hit 75,000 vCPUs, everything broke. Looking at the chart illustrates the problem. The Emoji Movie had grown to be two and a half times the size of any project we had managed before, and it really wasn't a surprise to us that things fell apart. So we dialed it back and made some adjustments. Right back through the cache, we're killing our read performance, so we separated out the heavy read I.O., mostly textures and geometry, by spinning up another cache cluster. We tightened up our AMI, we tuned Amazon's autoscaler to scale us up, and we introduced our own autoscaler to scale us down. We launched fleets in multiple zones and relied much more on multi-threading, preferably launching only one or two jobs per system. The results were dramatic. We averaged 60,000 vCPUs per day. Lighting quota per artist, which is a measure of productivity, increased by as much as 50%. Our auto-scaling methodology achieved 91% efficiency, which is pretty good since our job management system was not orchestrating our cloud environment. The production team was happy, and they felt they left nothing off the screen. The project delivered on time, under budget, and with all client notes addressed. In short, it was a complete success, and no one could believe it. And it turns out they still can't believe it. And the experience really got us excited in thinking about the next time we use SpotFleet for cloud bursting. Since our job management system knows what work we have to compute, we want it to orchestrate all of our cloud activities. 
on the job side, less bin packing yielded better system utilization, so we're making tweaks to run a single job per system. Tracking and managing ephemeral systems, like you might manage your own bare metal systems, can be problematic. So we've already started work on a pipeline to bake our config changes into our AMIs. And if you're interested in how to do that, the folks at Netflix have shared a lot on this methodology and how to execute it. Finally, using cloud to strategically segment workloads by priority seemed to work very well for us, and we were quite surprised by the productivity gains realized on the artist side. We're trying to quantify the speed up per department to see if we can make those gains permanent. And we believe that they can be made permanent. We believe that by strategically using flexible and scalable cloud resources, we can accelerate aspects of our creative process to deliver a superior product to our clients at a lower overall cost. Thank you. I know I went through that quickly. Uh, I'll be around after to answer any questions. You guys can email me, um, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thanks again. So I'm John Herbert with uh, 21st Century Fox. Uh, we're here today to talk about our media transformation for our global supply chain. Before I get started with the slides, I wanted to just briefly uh, give you some uh, vision of what amazing content that we're managing with the supply chain. So with that, I'm really excited to talk today about what we're doing with our media supply chain. And you can see we've, we've got some amazing content creators and I feel extremely privileged to be working with them. So with our project, we're really laying out the project vision. It was all about uniting the enterprise really on a powerful B2B media platform to seamlessly distribute our content globally. This is a great opportunity for 21CF because it really allowed us to drive some transformation and really pull the company together with a common approach for global content distribution. So with the goals, um, there were really three that we outlined. First and foremost, it was really to provide that consistent, comprehensive view of our global media and the content rights associated with that for, quite frankly, across every division with 21st Century Fox. Our second goal with this project was really about creating a consistent set of DD, uh, digital media capabilities 
to really support the business in, in, in an increasingly complex environment. Um, you'll see in later in some of the slides, we've exponentially grown on how much content we're trying to move globally with the various locations. And then the third, and, and this is really where the Amazon partnership comes in, um, which is really leveraging that cloud-first approach. Our goal here was really to drive the innovation um, and really capitalize on the innovation that's going on um, so we can ultimately really get lined up on how we can deliver content in the most efficient way to our customers globally. So speaking of customers, um, to give you an idea of scale, and this is really both our broadcast customers as well as uh, the digital platforms, um, we are supporting with this solution over 2,000 customers globally. Um, at this point, we are in almost every country of the, of the globe. Uh, so we're in 194 countries in a pretty complex environment because um, in addition, obviously, to English, we are supporting over 63 languages across the globe. The solution also is really designed, and this is a, a kind of a guiding principle that we used with 21st Century Fox, was really how do we support all of our brands. Um, we didn't want you know, one division or one group having a set of capabilities that may or may not be at the same level with the various divisions. So it was all about supporting the broad range of our, our brands, regardless if you're talking about Fox Film or FX or content distribution around Nat Geo or maybe Blue Sky. Uh, this does consist of about 90,000 titles, so it's a pretty large footprint of content that we are managing through this solution. So with the approach, um, we had a traditional uh, media platform that we were handling a lot of content distribution, but with that platform, it was internal. Um, it was on our own infrastructure and you know obviously served us in the beginning but also had some limitations going forward so this was all about how do we refresh our fox what we term as our fox media cloud we want it to be really a modern platform that first and foremost is really having uh, focused on secure a secure environment and really that dynamic platform that allows us to be able to support our, our creative leaders regardless of what division the second approach was about enabling a fully digital value chain. So it was really about an connecting our enterprise seamlessly to all of our distribution partners. And then the third approach was creating a, a modern user-friendly tools to support our creative colleagues. So one of, really one of the drivers was making sure we're delivering that consumer-like experience internally or to anyone that's partnering with us throughout the creative process. The fourth approach with this is around incorporating machine learning and AI. And, and you'll see with some of the scale that we're dealing with in some of the later slides, this was incredibly important. Regardless if it was um, you know, auto-tagging for being able to deal with the sheer volume of content we're bringing in or distributing out, as well as facial recognition, we also wanted to reimagine a lot of the business systems that support all this content and this content movement, such as content rights and how do we automate um, very traditional manual processes into a, in an automated fashion. And then the last approach for this project was really about continually focusing on security. Obviously, we're an IP-based company. Our IP is our company, so security has always been top of mind, but really this was probably our single biggest guiding principle on how we really focused on the replatforming of our global media supply chain. So with this transformation, it really consisted of three core pillars, um, which I'll, I'll discuss uh, in, the, in the next slide. The first one is about the content applications. 
And our real passion around this has been able to drive scale, um, not just for the content itself, but the volume of content we're pushing through. The second uh, pillar was around how are we gonna deal with our enterprise media platform? And then third is, and especially when you think about how much encoding and transcoding we're doing for all the various file formats, is also been able to deal with all the various languages. So then how do we incorporate um, our media management and the media services required to deliver so much content globally? So with our global media supply chain, um, like I say, it really is three parts. And this first one is around our enterprise media platform. This is really the heart of the solution, and this is all about how do we bring all, that con all the content from our various brands across our various divisions into one common platform. Um, not only content that we're creating internally, but also the various production houses that we're working with, as well as the post houses. We need a really highly efficient, highly automated um, way to handle that. In addition to only being secure, but then it's obviously, how do we deliver all the content out? So we wanted a seamless way to be able to distribute, whether if it's a platform play with a broadcaster or, or a digital platform, how do we seamlessly deliver that content? They're automated or where almost they have a, a browse-like um, poll experience if they're looking for content. But tightly coupled with this is also our media management. Again, it goes back to needing to deliver in 194 countries and 63 languages. Mastering and localization is incredibly important, so we need to have a very tightly integrated solution that could support the complexity of, of dealing with so much content. Obviously, we've got a tremendous amount of encoding and transcoding that goes on in our environment, and then ultimately having that package delivery. So it's not just about getting content to the customer, but it's also been able to wrap that digital package around it to be able to support either metadata or additional product metadata requirements, as well as um, things like marketing materials. And then the third component to our digital supply chain, and I think this has really helped uh, this has really helped us drive the efficiency and the scale that we've been looking to accomplish, which is then how do we tie in the business applications? So to be able to manage the large amount of uh, volume of content uh, requires a tremendous amount of business logic. So when you start thinking about how do we deal with product metadata and really driving a lot of efficiency with both film and television content with that product metadata, also dealing with product rights knowing what rights we own and what rights we've licensed out and putting a lot of business logic around it. And then more importantly, tying it to our, our global supply chain solution. And then dealing with either product avails and then lastly, um, really that, that consumer-like experience if a customer's coming in to, to browse marketing materials or promotional materials, um, creating a very simple, easy-to-use portal that allows them to be able to browse uh, looking for the content they would like to access. And when I mean media types, um, it's really all of our film and television content, or could we, we could leverage any of our film and television content through this global media supply chain post-theatrical. So it's every single file format post the theatrical window. Um, but it's not just the product itself, it's obviously the, all the component level assets. So we're, this really supports our video-related assets as well as audio. Uh, closed caption, subtitling, dubbing, so all the various things you would expect with such uh, large-scale global distribution. In addition, and not called out, and again, it also is handling all of our marketing materials and the various localized uh, marketing materials for global content distribution, as well as all of our promotional content. So, touching on some scale, 
you can see the exponential growth that has occurred with um, over the last several years. I mean, at this point now, we have over 23 million assets that are in our, in our uh, Fox Media Cloud environment. Um, storage, and again, another exponential growth. We have over 40 petabytes of content that's in scope for this initiative. Um, but then I think more importantly at all, you know, it, it, if you look at the numbers of what we're actually delivering to our customers, uh, we have over 2, 2 million deliveries a year, both marketing and production content, so a tremendous amount of content movement outbound, and there's about 400,000 orders. So part of the automation that we've done is really trying to make sure that we understood what piece of content, both technical specs as well as language, needs to be delivered to what customer on what day. So we've driven a lot of business logic with this to be able to handle the, the uh, footprint. So to kind of recap, and, and I think this is where the partnership with Amazon has been incredibly important to us, right? So when you're trying to deal with three pillars, the media platform itself, the media services, as well as the business applications, and be able to tie that all together, um, it's been an, an incredible partnership over the last year and a half, two years as we've been working on this. So we've moved already 10 petabytes of content that has been migrated over. Um, and then more importantly, what we're seeing, particularly in the application layer, has been able to shift a much more agile development cycle. Some of the additional benefits is, and this was really important to 21CF, is how do we really have a common data store and really break down any disparate data sources um, across our business units. We also wanted to be able to make sure that we were doing the automatic um, uh, tagging and ingesting, and, and this is where AI is incredibly important. When you start thinking about 23 million assets, um, it's just at a scale that you can't manually manage that level of information. Obviously, we touched on security. It's always gonna be top of mind in any solution that we're going after, and they've been great partners making this a priority for us, as well as uh, the solution set but then also been able to deal with the great elasticity and the scale. I mean, that's two aspects that just something we weren't able to do previously when we were obviously in our own environment. And then really this has allowed us to pivot, and I think this is the cultural change that's happened really on two things. One is how do we bring the organization together, which is really a platform like this has really helped. So when you start thinking about how much content creation and, and uh, replication that's going on, but then more importantly, the cross-channel distribution with our various business units, it's really allowed us to be able to work as one unified collaborative environment. And then more importantly from my team, freeing up a tremendous amount of time so we could then focus on driving media solutions as, a, as you know, instead of supporting traditional infrastructure or storage solutions. And then lastly, I wanted to touch on um, analytics, and this is a real passion of mine, and, and part of it is just because the sheer scale that we're dealing with is how do we drive the volume with, um, and really providing a robust analytics solution. And this is another thing that Amazon has been incredibly beneficial for us. So we, we moved um, all of our analytics for this solution to Redshift, um, the idea, the, to give you some idea of scale here, we've got about 300 te uh, terabytes that we've moved over. There's about 200 billion rows. Um, we've got about 25,000 queries every single day that's occurring in this environment. You just can imagine with the scale of content. Um, it's coming from about 100 data sources. So you start thinking about doing complex metadata packaging and think about all the metadata we need to bring together. 
Um, and then we've integrated about 12,000 scripts that are running about 35,000 jobs. So at this point, the solution has moved over to Redshift, and it's been a big benefit to the whole ecosystem we've built out. Just to recap some uh, results for us, we've actually been able to decommission our, our legacy on-premise data warehousing technologies. So for this solution, uh, there's nothing left on-premise. Uh, we've actually driven about 9% reduction in our operating cost and about 30% increase in performance, which is critical when you look at the exponential growth of our media. Uh, we've really moved to a more uh, dynamic, modern, and scalable cloud-based solution, which really allows us to uh, deal with uh, rapid onboarding of all the various data, data points that we're trying to bring in. So to close this, um, there's really three really core messages that um, Amazon's been great partners. First and foremost was, has been about speed. When you think about how fast our world is transforming, um, really having that right partner that has the agility, the elasticity, the flexibility that we need, um, and that's been really kind of the core driver of, of the partnership with, with us and AWS. Obviously, the scale, you've seen, seen the numbers. I mean, dealing with 194 countries, 23 million assets, 40 petabytes of content. So we needed to have um, a partnership that really could understand and, and support the scale of not where we're at today, but where we're really trying to go tomorrow. And then um, lastly, and obviously something we always have to stay close to, is this is really treated as a shared service. And, and the advantage of this is we're bringing the company together, but at the same time also being very cost-focused on how we drive savings through our whole ecosystem. And uh, the solution has been incredibly cost-effective as we've trans transitioned and really transformed to an on-premise solution to a partnership with AWS. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. So just a quick introduction. Is the mic on? So my name is Fabio Luzzi. I um, have a background in statistics, economics, and uh, computer science. And I'm with Viacom. I've been with Viacom for six years now. And I lead a team of data scientists, a small team of uh, 15 people. And the idea is to provide uh, data science and advanced analytics across the entire organization. And today I'm here with you to share, basically, uh, to share a challenge that we've been, uh, we've been facing for the past two years. And also, you know, I would like also to tell you how we've been solving for it. O obviously, you know, leveraging the power of the, of the, of, uh, the Amazon cloud. And uh, this, you know, we, what we've been doing for the past two years, it would have not been possible like, before the cloud, like 10 years ago, for obvious reasons like uh, cost, people, speed. And so, as you know, the cloud changed many things and make things like this possible. But basically, so like probably many of you, I work in an organization where access to data and to advanced analytics is somehow critical for the decision-making uh, process and where the demand for analytics is very high. So I don't know if you're familiar with Viacom, but, you know, we have something like 15 TV channels plus Paramount, and we work with uh, a lot of business units. So we work traditionally with research, marketing, ad sales, content creators, uh, acquisition, scheduling, programming. So as you can imagine, the demand for analytics is very uh, high. And you know, when, it's not, when, when access to analytics is not easy, uh, then it could be disruptive, because usually by the time you get an answer to the question that you had, 
it's already too late in the decision-making progress. So the goal here, it's really, it was really to make access to advanced analytics and data science easy across the entire organization. Basically, you know, to use an expression that's been around for, for a while now, the idea was to democratize, literally democratize data science. Uh, so it's not disruptive anymore. And why, why is that? Because when access to data is easy, and literally the idea is to have basically data science sitting in a meeting next to you. And it's not a meeting of uh, IT people, but it could be a meeting of marketing people or content creators, etc. And often it's people that don't, doesn't like data and uh, don't understand it or doesn't want to understand it. So how do you scale that? How, so there's no team that is big enough to address that, right? To face uh, that demand for analytics and to make a quick turnaround uh, to answer question using data. So the, the answer is pretty simple. The answer is basically, you know, to give access to advanced analytics directly in the hands of the users. So how do we do that? Because obviously it's easier said and done, especially when a lot of these users are, known, are not data people. It's people that doesn't really work with data. So the challenge, again, just to put things into a business context, so the challenge was to, to democratize data science. So before, obviously, I've been in Viacom for six years, so I've been doing analytics for, for a while, even before the use of the cloud. So before the implementation with the AWS, we used to operate in a traditional way. So people would come to us uh, with specific questions and we would run ad hoc analytics, uh, often time consuming. And there used to be you know, a lot of back and forth feedback loop, feedback loop between the data scientists and the users. That would translate into days before we could get back to the user with a question. So you know, five to 15 days or depending on the complexity of the question. So it was slow, and uh, also we, were, we, we would use conventional uh, delivery tools. So you know, most of them are nice and, and pretty uh, powerful, like Tableau, there is many of them out there, but still they were not flexi as flexible as we like them to be. So how do we solve for that? So a couple of years ago I had an idea, basically, to make data science access to data science easy for everybody. I said, let's build a platform, a web platform, for self-service analytics, where the user literally go, logs in, and run stuff on demand. And, you know, I always like to use the analogy of uh, the smartphone. It's the same concept. You know, on your phone, you have a lot of applications where each app does diff different things, and it's the same concept. The idea was to build an application, and on top of it, uh, sorry, to build a platform, and on top of it, to build applications where each app would, do, would be tailored to address a specific, more or less specific use case. So basically, we created a platform with an ecosystem of applications where, where again, each app is more or less tailored to address a specific use case. Obviously, it's, uh, they, we're trying to answer recurring questions. You know, not one-time questions, but questions that often come, come back. So now we have a self-service data science application where people can literally log in and run stuff in seconds and we also using ad hoc dynamic and interactive delivery tools. So the visuals, as you will see in some examples, the visuals are very interactive, interactive, dynamic, almost game-like. So the idea, because we wanted to um, target everybody in the company, as I mentioned, so not just the, the data people, but also uh, more like the marketing, the creative, the creative people. So we, we had to do mainly two things. One, make the, 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 the apps very easy to use. 
So, you know, not like 100 push buttons and down, uh, drop down menus, very easy to use. And then we would deliver the results using interactive data visualization that it's almost like fun to use. So even people like executives, even CEOs that doesn't have really, don't have really time to digest a lot of numbers would use the applications. <laughs> and obviously we did that with the use of the, of the cloud. So I wanted to, to do a live demo, but obviously that was too risky. So I took a video, <laughs> I took a video of, uh, of the actual applications, that's just to give you an idea. So the idea here is not to go through details. So the idea here is more to give you a feel of how the platform looks like, especially you know, focusing on the speed and on the, on the, on the graphics. So it's a web platform. So, you know, so there is a home page, you can log in, there is an authentication system, and then we have a portfolio of applications. Today we have four apps. So, the, the, for example, this app, it's, uh, and you know, we try to use data science, right, machine learning. So behind each app, there is pretty much, there is some machine learning algorithm. This app uses uh, look-alike modeling and act-alike modeling, and the idea is to identify audiences and uh, to be able to follow them across time. And the use case for this specific app would be uh, optimized media planning, competitive analytics, uh, audience segmentation, and audience profiling. And as you can see, it's pretty fast. And then the next application that I'm gonna show is called Pathway. Here we have an algorithm behind that it's basically path analytics. And uh, the idea is to have dependency models to optimize the audience flow for traditional linear TV viewing. Um, <clears throat> this is an example of how we use graphics to make uh, the output easy to digest. So imagine having this flow, audience flow, in a traditional table. You know, the user would have to go through a lot of numbers and columns and rows, but the idea is to make it very easy to digest. This is another app, it's called uh, Affinity Maps. Here we have um, some collaborative filtering and uh, you know, cosine similarity matrices behind, and the idea is to map affinities for specific audiences that you can change on the fly, to map affinities across content on how they consume TV content. So as you, as you can see, this is a good example of interactivity. You can, uh, each node is a, is, a, is a TV episode, and node are linked to each other if, if there is affinity, and you can literally map uh, the entire viewing uh, experience of that specific audience that you selected. So, uh, yeah, so, so data visualization is very important here because that's how we basically try to capture those users that normally don't use data. And there was uh, also, there is another section. So not everything becomes an application, right? Sometimes you have those one-off questions that you need to answer once. But still, we wanted to be able to use the same machine learning capabilities and data visualization to address those specific questions. So we created a new se section that we call Data Bytes. And basically what we do is we build data stories uh, trying to address the specific question. But again, they're like one-off questions. So now we have like, you know, 20 or 15 data stories that we published. Here, for example, you're looking at a visualization of a minute-by-minute -minute audience flow for one day for a specific audience, I believe it was kids six to 11, they watched a specific show on Nickelodeon. 
and again, the data visualization here was pretty powerful. Imagine, there, there, I think there are like 14, 14, 1,400 minutes in a day. So imagine visualizing that using a traditional um, visualization technique. So that's the platform. Now a little bit about the technology stack. So obviously we have a web component because it's a web uh, platform, but in the bottom, uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's how we use the AWS. It's a standard. Um, I don't think there is any surprise there. You know, it's a, stand, it's a standard technology stack for AWS. So, but we cover the entire process from ingestion of the, from data ingestion, transformation, and loading into building the actual analytics, uh, uh, which we mostly do using Python and R. And so, you know, we use uh, S3, uh, Lambda, uh, Easy Tools, obviously. Amazon Redshift, that's, where, that's the main database that we're using now. So all the, the, all the apps that you saw are basically powered. Every, every time you do something, we have um, a Python script that, uh, most of the time, we have a Python script that um, access Redshift and renders the data in, in for most of the time in the form of a JSON file, and then use, uses uh, some, some D3 JavaScript library to render the visualization. And then, yeah, for the web, you know, we have a bunch of stuff. Most, uh, the most important thing to, to mention maybe it's that because we use Python, we, we went for a Django framework, which is very friendly for Python, for Python uh, uh, scripts. Now, the last thing that I wanted to mention, we're very excited about this. So, you know, before I mentioned the ideas to democratize data and to literally have data science and data sitting next to you in a meeting. That sounds a bit cheesy, but it's actually happening because, uh, so there are some questions that people ask that don't really need to be um, addressed building an application, right? So, because they are simple questions that usually requires very few inputs and most of the time have a straightforward answer. Like for example, what was the rating of the show? What's the, most, the best performing show of the past two weeks? Uh, how did we do this year compared to last year? So, you know, you don't need to build a full-scale app, but still, you don't want to wait days, because sometimes if the, if the user is not a user that has access to data tools, they literally have to wait days to get an answer for a simple question. So how do we uh, address for that? How do we make that easy? Well, the answer is Alexa. So basically, this is the latest thing that we're doing. We are building a chatbot for analytics. I think I have one minute left. So I'm going to roll the video. So this is a chatbot for analytics that we are building. It's called Viacom Eve. But the idea is a chatbot. So we're going to launch this in January, and it's going to live on Slack first. Uh, so as you can see, you can ask Eve questions, and she replies on the fly. She can send you even email with attachment with, a specific, with a detailed reports. But later on, the idea is to have this as a web app on the same platform. So while you're running your, your more sophisticated application, if you have a quick question, you can just pop the chatbot up and ask a question. But then eventually, the idea is to translate this into an Alexa skill. So the dream is really to have Alexa on the desk of an executive where you know, the guy can literally ask, you know, how did we do this year compared to last year? And then the Eve would say, we give a quick answer, and he would ask, would you like me to send you an email with, uh, with the details, et cetera, et cetera. So we're very excited about this. And this is, to me, this is real democratization of data, because you have literally data, access to data in the, during a conversation. Thank you.
Hi, good afternoon. I'm Rajneel. Uh, I head up the products and technology at Bicom 18 in India. I already feel bad. I should have got some videos. I don't have any videos. So just bear with me. Uh, let me introduce Wycom 18 from India. Wycom 18 is a joint venture with Wycom from US. Uh, we, have, we run about over 40 different television channels. We have a fairly large movie production house, which makes about 10 uh, movies a year. We also have different uh, business lines, and uh, where I belong to is the digital business that we have. Uh, I've been with Wycom for about six years now. And what I want to talk about today is from the consumer side, how are we looking at changing how we reach consumers across the country, and it's a large country with a very unique set of problems that we try to address, and how we are looking at making our services smarter even as we scale up. We launched Woot last year in May, that's our OTT service. We have about over 42,000 hours of content. We add about 35 hours of new content every day. Uh, we are doing currently about 32 million monthly active users, between 32 and 35 million uh, active users uh, monthly. Uh, we do about 3.5 million daily active users, uh, about 4 billion minutes of content being streamed every month, about 13 million streams per day. And I think uh, one of the things that we've always focused on is that all these numbers are great, but how engaged are the audiences? And that's why that last number there of 55 minutes per user per day is the number and the metric that we really chase, and we hope to keep uh, seeing that always grow. First, I want to talk about something that we did to reach a very unique set of audiences. As we scaled up our service, we realized that we are servicing about 11,000 different Android devices, and India is a primarily Android market uh, with about 93% share. When we launched our service, we were doing about 80% uh, of all content being delivered through apps. And we knew that was not the best way to reach audiences who have devices primarily which are less than $100, uh, has very less memory, and apps for them, uh, so there's a statistic which says that one in three Android user every day has to make a choice of what does he delete. Does he delete a family picture or just keep the next app? And, you know, so that's a choice that they need to make, and while we think we are very good and, uh, and you know, that they should be always watching us, we are just one more service that he needs to have. And the app is a very restrictive ecosystem from that perspective. So we partnered with Google and we launched India's first, uh, actually the world's first OTT uh, progressive web app, um, which uh, has today completely changed the way that we are looking at our audiences. Amongst all the audience, uh, numbers that we saw improve for us, I think two numbers I wanted to call out is that today only 50% of all content is being consumed through the app, while 50% comes through the browser. And within that, we have about 50% now coming in from the Progressive Web App, up from 20% earlier. So it's a very unique shift. And if you think about it, uh, when somebody wants to watch something, and we are an AWOD platform, the, the, the thing that you would like to do is go on the web, search for something, and just be able to play it right there. So once we were able to break that barrier, I think uh, we've been able to get a lot of consumers on board. Uh, this, of course, has made the marketing folks pretty happy because it's cheaper to acquire customers now and keep them on. And, the second project I wanted to speak about is Woot Go. India being about 1.3 billion, uh, you know, people, 1.3 billion people, and with only about 400 million roughly internet connections, and out of that 60% being 4G, 3G, there is a large mass of people who have smartphones but are not necessarily always connected. And also, there's a cost aspect. It is expensive to consume data to to stream content. So we, said, we thought that if we are looking at now the 280 million go up to the next 200 million coming on board and then progressively going up from there, 
all of them will not necessarily be the, the same kind of audiences. These will be people who are connected at some point to certain areas uh, where they can consume content, but mostly they would either, either download the content, take it back with them, or they would find alternate ways of consuming content. Maharashtra, which is one of the largest states in India and, and uh, home to the financial uh, to the business capital, which is Bombay, um, we tied up with the state transport corporation there. And when we reach scale, we will have about 13,000 buses rigged up with this pretty unique box that we created, where a user gets on, goes on, and it creates an intranet. He goes on, there's about 200 hours, and, and logs in, there's about 200 hours of content available for him to consume. And when we hit, uh, we are at about 10,000 buses now, and when we hit scale, we'll be doing about 2.4 uh, billion trips a year. So there's, that's a fairly large number that we're trying to reach out. Again, it's completely free. And what it does is that it brings on a very unique set of advertisers to reach these audiences. And I think this is a, a great step that we have taken to uh, bring on consumers probably for the first time who will be streaming content. From here, I, I wanted to speak about uh, what we're doing with uh, AWS. And um, there are a couple of projects that I will speak about, but the first one is that, uh, you know, it's been 18 months, and we have gone from a PowerPoint presentation that we want to make an OTT service into now supporting about 35 odd million monthly actives. Uh, we realized that we have built up a lot, large number of silos of data that was being collected, but we were, were not really giving us a unified view of the consumers. So if you look at the bottom there, we are talking about five different data sources that we've tried to bring together onto a data lake. The first one is AppBoy, which we use for notification, then AppSee, which we use for, for app uh, analytics. We got Mixpanel, which is our main uh, data uh, analytics tool. We got Ubora, which is a QoS, uh, QoS platform, and we got Oyala, through which we serve ads. Now, uh, imagine all of them working in isolation and not really giving you a comprehensive view of the whole of the, of the customer journey. That is when we have now you know, used all the AWS stack to be able to create a unified view of the user. And I will touch upon what we're using this for with two use cases that I would like to highlight. A couple of other things that we're doing now is the heartbeat services, the core, metri uh, the core tool through which we measure on the web how the users and how long they're staying on the platform and consuming. That's being built on the AWS stack. And uh, I wanted to particularly call out Big Boss. Uh, Big Boss is the Indian version of, uh, of Big Brother. Uh, we run it on a platform, and it's one of the largest reality shows in the country. Um, we launched on 1st October, and uh, as you would know, uh, Big Brother has, you know, the way that audiences engage with the show is that you have to vote to keep somebody in the house or vote out and, and all of that, and then the winner is decided. Till last year, we used to do all of this voting on SMS. Um, this year, we decided that all of the voting we would like to bring onto the OTT platform and really, you know, just create one place that the consumer is coming to. And... Um, so today is about the 27th, and we have still about a month and 10 days to go. We have got about 42 million votes on the platform so far. And out of that, we have about 2 million completely new users who have come on the platform. So I think that's uh, you know, the end goal of being able to enable so many things on the same video platform. What I wanted to uh, talk about, a um, couple of things that we're doing here, machine learning, and I'll speak about that in a minute. Elemental, we are using from AWS as we build out a linear playout, which we'll also be taking global. And we are creating a single sign-on across all the Viacom uh, 18 properties in India, which are consumer-facing. Now, you saw all the data that we are now starting to collect. And one of the use cases that we are now looking at doing is that all of us hates notifications, especially when they come at the wrong time, and it probably is one of the top reasons why you would like to delete an app. 
what we are now looking at is we have all the data about when the notifications were sent earlier, what was um, the behavior that the consumer had once he received the notification, did he watch something after that or what did he do, and we have taken all of that and, con and have created a machine layer where we are starting to build uh, you know, profiles about the users and eventually being able to create automated segments which, which creates uh, you know, great interactivity for the users. So that's something that we are doing on notification. And essentially here we create a string of codes uh, for a custom behavior segment which is then automatically picks up the API and uh, segments the users to be able to send out the notification. The prototype that we have implemented right now, we are able to get successful no notification opens at about 89% accuracy. And we're hoping that when we are able to roll it out to complete scale, the same numbers hopefully continue and we, are, and we Im uh, immediately increase the amount of engagement that we get onto the platform. The, another project which I wanted to speak about is that if you think about video, most of the action is taken around what has hap uh, happened on the platform after it has happened. You would go for a couple, from a couple of minutes that the video was not showing up and try and bring it down and see what are the other things which are going wrong. But it's mostly about manual diagnostics and trying to understand what went wrong and taking an action. Whether there was an origin failure, whether there was something around the CDN, or there was just one piece of content which was choking up the transcoders and it was not able to move forward. So again, using our QoS mechanism, where we now have an insight right from the player to the origin of understanding how the video journey has been, we have created a machine layer which learns from all the past instances and actually auto-diagnoses. So every little spike which happens on the platform, the system is able to understand what this would eventually mean and be able to immediately send out the right notifications to the correct people to be able to, to take exactly you know, the kind of action which should be taken. So, so at scale of running about 35 mil, uh, you know, 13 million uh, streams a day, it is extremely important for us because we have a large complex network of telecom ISPs that we're dealing with, CDNs, and as we look out uh, of going globally, this will become even more important for us to have the intelligence layer to be able to predict failure even before, uh, you know, at, well, not really before it happens, but gen just when it is about to happen, so that if you have a tolerance layer set at, say, 0.5% of the times, at 0.1 or 0.2%, you are able to isolate what are the exact things which are going wrong and take the right action. So uh, this is what I was speaking about. So it, uh, it could actually tell you if there were particular devices which were failing, there was uh, ISPs which were having any problem, there were CDNs which, which needed to be switched, and all of this, uh, for a human being to take action, he has to ha have a large number of data sets available. So with us having this uh, on the machine layer, it just makes all of that far more simpler. And when we have implemented this prototype now, what we're seeing is that at the tolerance levels that we are setting, we're getting about 90% accuracy of predicting what the failures could be and enabling us to take early action. Thank you. And very quickly, uh, just wanted to uh, plug some new services that we launched. So, uh, for those of you who were here during the uh, earlier session, we just announced our AWS Media Services. We're extremely excited about these services. They're bringing in professional quality, broadcast quality types of uh, transcoding. Uh, they're bringing in uh, great uh, services from uh, Elemental directly onto the uh, AWS console. So uh, there are a variety of sessions happening uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday uh, where you'll be able to learn about these. 
Probably the best is uh, to uh, do a keyword search on AWS Elemental or AWS Media Services, and you'll be able to hear a lot more about uh, all these great services. Uh, but one uh, last time, we'd just like to uh, congratulate and thank our great speakers today.